There is a point where all the conversations, all the research, all the evaluation, all the skeptics and optimists collectively and those discussions hit diminishing returns. It sort of becomes asymptotic, if you would. And you have to jump. And I had this conversation recently with someone. You never avoid building a company that moment where you have to jump off the cliff. It is an unavoidable moment. And I think in some respects, what you want to do is try to make the cliff to ground ratio as close and small as you can. So you limit the amount, the height by which you're jumping from. Welcome to In Depth, a new show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, their companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. Through over 400 interviews on The Review, we've shared standout company building advice, the kind that comes from those willing to skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. With our new podcast, In-Depth, you can listen in to these deeper conversations every single week. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Irving Fame. Irving is the founder and CEO of Bowery Farming, which is a modern farming company that grows produce indoors, free from pollutants and uses significantly less water and space. First Round is incredibly privileged to be a seed investor in Bowery and get a front row seat from the very beginning. Irving and Bowery are at a particularly exciting inflection point. The company grew 750% since last January and just announced a $300 million round. It's the largest fundraise to date for an indoor farming company. And Bowery plans to use the latest investment to continue expanding its smart indoor farms, support ongoing research and innovation efforts, and recruit amazing people. Bowery's mission is to democratize access to fresh, locally grown food. It's no doubt an extremely complex problem, so it might surprise you that its founder, Irving, didn't have any background in agriculture before starting Bowery. But looking back on the early days of Bowery, Irving believes his naivete was in fact an asset. Coming in with no preconceived notions about how to solve the problem, he committed to approaching agriculture with a wide aperture and going unreasonably deep. In today's conversation, he walks us through his multi-pronged approach to developing the idea for what would become Bowery, which includes paying just as much attention to the doubters as to the folks who believed in the vision. He also candidly reflects on some of the challenges with building an incredibly complex business with very, very few established playbooks to pull from. As one example, he talks about investing in branding in the earliest days, despite most folks saying it was completely unnecessary for an early stage agriculture company. But the branding became a critical leg in what Irving calls Bowery's three-legged stool. Next, we switch gears and talk about assembling Bowery's small but mighty team of five, which Irving kept deliberately small and sought out folks that didn't have vast agriculture experience and could approach problems from first principles. 
Whether you're a founder yourself or have long-term career goals to make the leap, today's episode is packed with equal parts inspiration and tactical takeaways. I really hope you enjoy it. And now my conversation with Irving. I thought the place that we could start is at the beginning of the journey. And one of the things that I've been really fascinated with over a very long period of time is why certain founders that approach an entirely new field, why they sometimes have tremendous success and other times don't. And I wanted to start at the early days of Bowery and learn more about how did you learn everything about the opportunity having very, very little knowledge of the space, certainly relative to your operating and company building career before then? I think, and this is by no means the first time this thought has ever been shared, but naivety and ignorance as an entrepreneur is an important quality and attribute for you to possess. So I think that you've got to acknowledge that the ability to not know what lives around every single corner you're headed towards, strangely, is actually an advantage because it forces you around corners and into crevices that you normally would never go into if you thought at least you knew what was there. And so I think that there is always a healthy amount of that sort of lack of knowing and that naivety that should go into the evaluation of any idea in any business. That said, you've got to pair that with real knowledge and understanding of the industry and the business that you're going into. And in my case, I do not come from a long time farming family. I didn't work in agriculture specifically before Bowery. And so really much of my knowledge was self-taught. I grew up surrounded by fresh food and the importance of fresh food. I, I like to say my mother was well ahead of her time, I think, in, in hindsight. Farmers markets and the antioxidants and this vegetable. But I was nowhere near an expert in agriculture. And so when I started sort of wading into the waters, the first thing I did was just take a really broad lens towards agriculture. And, and I, what I did was just... I talked to anybody I could talk to, read anything I could read, watched anything I could watch. I went to farms, talked to people. There was not a ton of ag tech going on at the time. So Climate Corp was sort of the company people held up as the example of agriculture technology. So I talked to a few different people at Climate Corp to try to get a sense of what they saw was happening in the world. And you start with a really wide aperture and I think part of what you need to do is as you walk down the path, you have to further narrow and further narrow that aperture, both against the idea and the ultimate business that you want to build, but also against the aspects of that business and idea that are actually most important and matter the most. And so an example of that, when I started, I looked broadly at agriculture. So I was looking at SaaS on the farm. I was looking at drones and satellite imagery for farming and precision agriculture. And, and all of those areas were potentially interesting for me. I really allowed myself to explore and understand everything. And it was as time passed and I went further and further that my focus increasingly narrowed towards this question of urban agriculture and more specifically, how do you get fresh food to urban environments and how do you do that more sustainably and more efficiently? And as I got further down the path, what I read, 
who I talked to, where I spent my time also became increasingly focused on that specific question versus on this notion of agriculture broadly, for instance. There's a few things that I wanted to follow up on. I guess I'll start at the top. When you're talking to all sorts of different folks, in this case in ag, but let's say you're interested in healthcare, the same metaphor or or approach I think holds, what are the types of things you're asking? That question is really specific to what you're working on. So I, I don't know that there's a general question that cuts across healthcare and construction and agriculture necessarily, because each of those industries is sort of unique and different, but has their own kind of nuances. The way I'll answer it a little bit differently is like, who did I go ask? And I think that I really tried to focus on people, first and foremost, when the aperture was widest, just people who had experience and expertise in the industry. And maybe this does cut across all these industries to understand like where the problems were, where do the challenges lie? Where do the problems actually come from? Where did the largest opportunities seem to be present? But to be fair, in this instance, like I had began to form a thesis around the importance of urban agriculture, the more time I spent both looking at agriculture and looking at sort of the global macro climate. And so conversations helped move me down the path, but that thesis came from more than just single conversations. What I do think is important in terms of who you're talking to is to be really cautious not just to fall victim to confirmation bias or happy years. And what I mean by that is ensuring that you're talking to people who are both excited about what you're doing and generally believe in what you're doing, but equally important is to talk to and find people who don't believe in what you're doing, think you're taking the wrong path, and ultimately think you're making a mistake going about this business. And the tact that I took at Bowery was not to believe this was possible and prove that wrong, but actually was the opposite. And to say, I'm going to go from a base level assumption that this isn't possible and try to prove that wrong, that is, in fact, it is possible to do this in a viable way. And so I really sought out at the time the real naysayers in the industry right alongside the folks who were the biggest evangelists. I mean, one of the stories I remember fondly, there's a guy named Dixon de Palmier, who is a, a professor up at Columbia and, and sort of thought of as one of the really early evangelists and believers in indoor agriculture and in vertical farming specifically. And Dixon had reached out to him and gotten a hold of him and said, Hey, I'd love to come talk to you and just pick your brain. And he said, sure, come on up, let's sit down. And so I you know, went all the way up to the Upper West Side, to Columbia, and I get to his office and the woman sitting there says, oh, he's not here. And I was kind of like, oh, yikes. Uh, and I said, do you know where he would be? And she said, oh, he's eating lunch and he tends to like to go to this Irish pub around the corner. And so I said, okay. And I picked up and went to the Irish pub and there was Dixon de Pommier eating buffalo wings sitting there. Fortunately, I love buffalo wings. So I sat down right next to him and we ended up having this great hour and a half long conversation about how inevitably vertical farming was going to be enormously successful and the next biggest and greatest thing. And so you walk out of that conversation energized and excited and hearing the enthusiasm. But I paired that with a set of professors up at Cornell 
who had done a lot of research and worked extensively and felt that it was impossible. And I spent an equal amount of time talking with them to understand why they believed what they believed because it was really important to look at all sides of the equation to really make sure that I had thought through all the possibilities and the things that could go right, but equally, and maybe more importantly, all the possibilities and the things that can go wrong. And I think if you haven't done that as an entrepreneur, you're not asking enough of the hard questions and you're not looking hard enough at your idea. There should be hundreds of reasons of why this can't work. That's fine. Doesn't mean you don't do it. Better to know them ahead of time. That's great. Love that framework. So I'm going to come back to that in a second. One of the things you mentioned is you had a wide aperture and then you narrowed around this sort of problem area of urban agriculture. Do you remember what the process was to narrow in on that and say, you're not going to do something drones, you're not going to do some farm operating system for farmers in Idaho or any other idea you were pursuing? Was it just following your own intuition or there was a way that over the course of this research in all these different formats, you decided that you were going to zoom in and focus in on this problem of urban ag? I think there's some of this comes down, Brett, to just the notion of founder market fit, which people talk about, right? So SaaS on the farm is is a great business. There's some great companies out there now being built on that concept. You know, Granular is one of them and Farmers Business Network is another. I mean, those are great businesses. Precision agriculture is another great industry and drones and satellite imagery for farms. Those are all really good businesses. So it wasn't that I'd come to the point of saying, I didn't believe those were good areas of focus. Now, I certainly looked at some areas that I said, that's not a good area of focus per se, but there were certainly some I looked at that were. They didn't, however, capture my passion, my imagination, and my enthusiasm. And I think that component of the stew, if you would, is incredibly important when you're founding any business, really, because of how long and hard of a journey building a company really is. And so I've talked about this before, but one of the things most importantly, I think I used to evaluate what I did next was actually the barometer of time. And what I mean by that is I'm sure you see this too. Like I've seen friends and folks I know get incredibly excited about an idea. They go out and they raise some money and then very quickly the excitement sort of evaporates and you're now stuck building this thing and building this company that you're actually only sort of moderately interested and excited about. And so I forced myself as I was looking and evaluating different ideas to even when I got more and more excited, not prevent myself from continuing to look in other areas, in other industries, at other opportunities to make sure most importantly that the excitement for what I ultimately have built at Bowery that that grew and grew over time, that the slope of the line had resiliency. And that time that I allowed to elapse gave me that much more conviction and confidence when I really was ready to say, okay, now this is what I want to do. It gave me confidence that in the great times and in the difficult times, the passion, the enthusiasm, the real love of the problem and the business would persist. So were you basically asking yourself, can I imagine working on this for a decade plus? In essence, yes. I would say that's sort of the core of the question you're getting to is, am I going to be excited about this in three years, in five years, in seven years, 
because I knew the journey that I was about to embark on was not a shorter journey. This was a, a long-term journey. And, and what we're building at Bowery is a generational business. It is the next great food and agriculture company. And that's not something that happens over the course of a few years. And certainly, you know, the road is, is windy and one never knows where it's going to take you. But my anticipation was I wanted to do something that was a long-term play. And so I wanted to do the best I could in a short amount of time to evaluate and play forward. What would my enthusiasm and passion look like over time? So a few minutes ago, you talked about this approach that you had of seeking out basically maybe what might be seen as like optimists and pessimists about the specific thing that you were working on as you began to narrow around this opportunity in urban agriculture and indoor farming. If you can remember back, I'm really curious, how do you go from all of these different conversations, these sort of learning conversations with people sharing all sorts of different things about why it'll work, why it won't work, to actually landing on like what V1, where we're starting, what we're doing in what order? Do you have like a spreadsheet where you're organizing things? Is it intuition based? What's sort of the process to land on V1 of Bowery? There's two parts to the question you're asking. I think the first part is more universal. And what I mean by that, and I guess there's there's universal frameworks in the second part as well. But, but what I mean by that in the first part is there is a point where all the conversations, all the research, all the evaluation, all the skeptics and optimists collectively and those discussions hit diminishing returns. It sort of becomes asymptotic, if you would. And you have to jump. And I had this conversation recently with someone. You never avoid building a company that moment where you have to jump off the cliff. It is an unavoidable moment. And I think in some respects, what you want to do is try to make the cliff to ground ratio as close and small as you can. So you limit the amount, the height by which you're jumping from, but it is impossible to avoid or extremely difficult. Maybe there's some examples of this to avoid the fact that at some point you're jumping off into the abyss. And I think you, you can do so much work to get there, but there is no amount of work and research that will allow you to step off. And I think that I learned from actually much earlier in my career before I started my first company, when I went, spent enormous amounts of time evaluating, 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 saying no, and evaluating, 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 and saying no. And in hindsight, I looked back and said, wow, I said no to some great ideas, actually. I spent way too much time getting to the wrong answer, arguably. And you've got to also be disciplined to get to that place for yourself and say, hey, okay, now's the time. It's, it's fish or cut bait. That's the first piece. To the second question you asked around how do we decide what was V1 at Bowery, I think that Bowery is a particularly interesting case study in this because we are building a really complex business. And so there's a lot of different components to our business. And so the MVP of a software company is ultimately going to be a lot simpler in some respects than what we built as our equivalent MVP at Bowery. And what I did do though, and I think any entrepreneur needs to do early on, is determine what matters most at that very early stage. What are the most important things for you to prove to yourself, 
to prove to the market, to prove to the investing community if you're going to be fundraising. And once you've identified what those most important things to prove are, the next question is, how can you most efficiently get to those proof points? What do you need to build? What needs to be created? Who do you need to hire to actually achieve those proof points? Not too much more, but not less. That's sort of where you need to go. That's your first step. And to the extent that it's a fundraising-driven question, and it it can't only be a fundraising-driven question. It has to also be about customer development and market development. But one of the things I talk a lot about is just that fundraising is milestone management. And so understanding what you need to do and what you need to prove to get to that next milestone and being judicious and efficient in that exercise is really important. Can you share what the answer to that framing is for Bowery in the early days? Like, how did you break it down into what are the milestones? What do we have to do in what order? We did a lot of work early on, even before we raised a dollar of capital, trying to do the best we could to understand whether the critics were right or the optimists were right. And the point at which we decided to raise capital and to move from call it research phase to building, was that point where we hit diminishing returns. All the research, all the testing, all the building of growth systems and analysis and spreadsheets wasn't going to yield equivalent value. And the next step for us was we needed to build a farm of some substance and size. And we had gotten comfortable that a number of the critics' assertions were not accurate at that point. But we didn't know. And there were certainly very large open questions for us. But we did get to a place of saying, sitting ourselves and testing on a very small scale and iterating, that's not going to get us much further to answer those questions. I remember talking to you guys at first round early on. I mean, I, I have talked about this deck many a time because the, in some ways the framework that we created was incredibly simple, yet the execution underneath it was immensely complex. It was build it, grow it, sell it. And so what does that mean? It meant, could we in fact build an indoor farm with the technology and the approach that we had created? Could we in fact then grow food in the way that we expected we would be able to grow food? And once we grew that produce, Would it be any good? And would anybody actually want to buy it from a retailer perspective? And then would consumers want to buy it from the retailers themselves? And those seem like such simple concepts when you lay them out this way, but the work and execution underneath each layer was immense. And that framework at least gave us guiding post to focus our efforts and our energy to determine what we do and don't do in those early days and to, to build and grow in a efficient and effective way as possible. So I have a couple of questions about that specifically, but just to sort of close out the ideas you were sharing about talking to critics and then translating that into experiments. Can you give a couple examples of a given naysayer said X, and then in this pre-funding, before you raised any capital, this research and testing phase, how you took that 
and then tried to sort of validate if it was true because my sense from how you're describing it was there was a series of these pre were building the first farm tests that were rooted in both what some of the optimists, their ideas and double checking the pessimists. Part of the early testing for us as well, though, is, and I think one of the mistakes sometimes people make when they look at indoor farming broadly is grouping the category into one. And sure, everything sort of ultimately falls under the umbrella of controlled environmental agriculture, whether it's a greenhouse or hydroponic growing in a vertical farm or aeroponic growing in a vertical farm or container farming. It does all fall under that umbrella. But the truth of it is every one of these growing methods is very different from one another. And one of the decisions and realizations, actually is a better word, that we had early on was that the system itself that you choose and the way you build your farm has an extraordinarily large impact on what you ultimately can grow in terms of your varieties, the efficiency by which you can grow those crops, and ultimately how economic of a model you actually can build. And so that decision really early on in terms of your base level technology was clear to me to be a very, very important decision. And so we actually took a first principle approach looking at the problem, meaning I had no horse in the race. It didn't matter to me which system we built. I had no preference for hydroponics versus aeroponics or aquaponics or building a greenhouse or having a container farm. It didn't matter to me at all. What I was really in search of was the answer to what is the most scalable and efficient way to tackle this problem? And included in the answer set for us was there is no scalable and efficient way to do this. Because I felt like if there was a way for us to figure that out early on, I much rather would have done it then than spend X number of years and dollars to get it to an answer I could have found out much earlier. And that effort of evaluating these systems and understanding the approach and testing and learning was at sort of a meta level, looking at the critics broadly who were saying, this is impossible. This can't be done. This can't be achieved in an economically viable way. And so the question was, is that right or is that wrong? And the way to answer it was to take that first principle view of the industry. And to us, very clearly, the place to start there was, what is the system you use to grow your crops? Building on that, where did you go from, you landed on this insight that the system is the single most important thing. And so then how did you figure out which system or what bet you were going to make? That was year and a half plus of testing and learning and building different systems and understanding economic components of, of the model, understanding the cost implications, understanding the productivity implications of each system, understanding the pros and the cons of each system and doing that by doing, not just by theorizing wherever possible. And that endeavor was what led us to the system and the technology that we've built today at Bowery. It also is what led us to the recognition that a lot of people early on when I was building Bowery 
put a lot of stock and focus on the trend around LED lighting and the importance that the cost of lights had come down and that the efficiency of lights had gone up. And there's no question that that trend was critical to what we do today at Ballery. Without it, you wouldn't be here. But that trend in lighting makes indoor farming viable. It doesn't actually make it scalable. And the way we have always defined scalable is large volumes of crops, large varieties of crops grown consistently at a high quality and ultimately at a price point that opens up a large market. So while the lighting trend is inevitably important, what I realized was lights alone don't make this scalable. That we had an opportunity to leverage innovation that was happening in robotics and automation. You could do more with robotics and automation at cheaper pricing really than ever before. Innovation that was happening around controls and sensors, innovation around computer vision and artificial intelligence, and then generally just the ability to store and process large amounts of data. And it was really the ability to take those trends coupled with the trend in LED lighting and put all of that together into a model that will change the way we grow food moving forward. And that realization and that analysis also was a very important part of the early determination about how we built the company. Because it isn't just for us at Bowery about the grow system. It's incredibly important. The grow system and the automation and the robotics inside of it matter a lot. But we've also built what we call the Bowery operating system, which is the brains of our whole operation and our farms. And it's a combination of software and hardware and AI and computer vision, which not only controls the agricultural components of the business, but also the whole supply chain and the operations inside of the farm. And that component of our business is as important as the growth system itself. And it was that early analysis, that early understanding, that early evaluation, and both the optimists and the naysayers that pushed the thinking to that point and helped to really structure what we define as sort of the early framework of Bowery. So on that point, can you talk into any detail or just give an example of how you figured out even what to test, given it just seems like this multifaceted problem that is almost mind-bendingly complicated when you start to have all these different puzzle pieces you have to fit together? And so like what an experiment looked like or how did you roadmap something that seems so complicated with basically what I would think about as like these nested bets, these things that kind of have to click together. And if there's a weak link anywhere along the way, at the end of the day, the thing doesn't work. It's interesting because this goes back to the beginning of, of our conversation where we talked about the importance of naivety as an entrepreneur. I mean, this was ambitious. There's no question about it. Now, fortunately, I've been doing this almost 20 years now. And so I knew enough to look this down the line and realize this is not a simple problem. This is not a simple business and company to build. I think like anything else, the complexity just continues to unfold as you walk the path. You know, one of the analogies I always like to give in building a company is you know, those video games where you walk around the map in the video game and the 
the map around you illuminates as you walk into it. It's all dark and it doesn't get illuminated until the character actually gets into that region of the map. And I think building a startup in some ways is like staring down this map, which is slightly illuminated, but mostly dark. And you have to steer your character through this map and illuminate different areas. And some illumination may give you a sense of what's to come further on, but then easily sometimes you can illuminate your way right off a cliff potentially, right? I mean, that's kind of the way it goes. And I understood enough about the complexity that was in front of us. I had built an enterprise software business before Bowery. I knew how to build the software side of this generally. I am not a software engineer, so I certainly wasn't the one writing the code. But I, I knew that part of this was possible. We had done enough work to really clearly understand the opportunity as it related to the growth system and the technology there and land on a system that we felt was the best answer to this. And that was what we started with. And I had a, as much understanding as I could at the time about the agricultural side of this and how the plant science piece fit into everything. But this is sort of where, as we talked about, you had to jump off a cliff. I could sit on a chair and think my way around this problem for another decade. And it wouldn't have gotten me to an answer. The only way to get to the answers and the things I know today is to follow the path that we followed, sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly. But one of the things we say at Bowery is getting ahead means getting started. And at some point, you just have to get started. So going back to what you were sharing a few minutes ago, you ended up raising seed capital from us and had to take this 10 or 20 plus year vision of a company and chunk it down into what you had to get done in those first 18 months. There are certain types of companies that are very well understood. And so thus, this idea of executing against milestones is relatively easy. Going back to your SaaS experience before, we have a general sense of what a company has to look like to get a bunch of capital to come in post initial investment. I would assume the trick in your business is a lot of people that are looking at your business have not looked at 150 similar businesses. And so this milestone or what we need to get done in the next couple of years seems incredibly hard to figure out. And so I'm curious how that kind of all fits together for you. You're exactly right that there is no playbook for what we're doing here. And I think that's both what makes it incredibly exciting and exhilarating. And it's also what makes it very difficult at times. And there is no crib sheet that somebody can pull out to say, here are the eight questions I've asked the other hundred companies that do what you do in the past to help me understand how to think about what you're doing, your progress and your opportunity. And what that means is two things. Number one, one of the important jobs that I had then and, and I have to today is being not only an effective evangelist for what we're building and why it's important at Bowery, but equally and importantly is being a very effective teacher to others, not just about why what we're doing matters and is important, but even more importantly, why how we are doing it at Bowery is the most efficient and effective way to tackle this problem. And why we've taken the path we've taken and chunked it out in the way that we have sort of created these milestones and these phases of the business and what we've hoped to achieve in each phase, where we've 
fallen short or done even better and what we are going to achieve in the next phases and why those next phases make sense against the phases that have come before them. And I think what is sort of assumed in what I just said is because you're not just an evangelist, but you're equally a teacher, it is really important for me to understand the core material incredibly well. Because I need to not just be able to tell somebody the story at a high surface level. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why is it exciting? Why is it interesting? And in some ways, that part of the story at Bauer is not particularly difficult to tell. But then when you get into the why are we tackling this problem in the way that we're tackling it, and why should one believe that this can become a very large, successful company, you have to be able to double and triple click down. And that not only allows me to make sure we as a company are focusing on the right areas, but it also enables me to instill confidence in people I'm talking to that the analysis that we as a team have done is sound. And what's been fun and exciting is as our team grows and we bring incredible experts around the table, that isn't now just me doing analysis and double and triple and quadruple clicking, but it's many other people with vastly more experience and expertise in their areas than I have sitting alongside me doing those deep dives as well. And that helps people who don't know a ton about agriculture, let alone urban agriculture, get comfortable and confident in what we're building it, how we're building it, and why we're building it. Going back to this build, grow, sell framework, you had to figure out how to chunk this whole thing down into what you're going to do in what order over that first 12 or 18 months would love you to sort of share what you ended up doing, how you figured out that that was the right thing to work on given limited time and limited capital. Yeah, I think we broke the core business down. I thought about the business in a three-legged stool, which is what I've said many times. And it is kind of three core components. It's the farm itself, which is warehouse scale indoor farms where we stack our crops from the floor all the way to the ceiling. We grow under lights that mimic the spectrum of the sun. We grow 365 days of the year, independent of weather and seasonality. It is completely pesticide-free, protected produce. No herbicides, no fungicides, no insecticides. We're 100 times plus more productive than a square foot of farmland, and we use a small fraction of the water. So building that farm model, that was critical. The second part was the technology layer in the farm. It was the Bowery operating system. And so I talked about it before, but that's the central nervous system or the brains, not only of our grow room and the growing side of the business, but now the entire operations and supply chain itself. And that was such a core belief of mine that that was going to generate maximum scalability and efficiency. And it was at that time just a hypothesis. At this point today, my view is you cannot scale this business without the system we've built. And so building that from the start, I knew was key. And the third leg of our stool was our brand itself and selling 
produce under the Bowery name that stands for, of course, taste and flavor and quality, but transparency and honesty and trust for sustainability and responsibility in the way we grow. And so if you double click into what brand means, brand means a fantastic product that people love and are excited about. And so those key pieces I knew were important. And so knowing they were important, it made sense that we've got to build a farm because we are a farming company. We need to begin to build the operating system and the software because the thesis was this is going to be important to our scale. Now, you can double click in each one of these Brett, because the operating system that we built years ago is a fraction of what we have today, of course, right? So even within each of these buckets, you have to focus. The farm today looks drastically different than the farm we built back then. So even narrowing down within the buckets or the pillars, what we were going to do was an important effort. And so focusing on what mattered most in the software was important. Focusing on what mattered most in the farm was important. And focusing on what mattered most in the brand was important. And it was interesting because I had people saying, why would you build a brand? That's silly. You don't need to build a brand yet. Nobody knows you guys are. You're not even growing anything. Do that later. Don't spend that money. And I was really convinced that each of these pillars of the business was critical. And so I invested time and resources in every one of those areas. Now focused, but in each of these areas. And that helped us validate the totality of the model that we were going after when we saw we could in fact build an efficient and effective farm. Now, plenty of learnings that we would ultimately take forward into future farms to make them better and more efficient. Plenty of learnings around the operating system, around future road mapping and what we would add and how we would change it. And plenty of learnings as our brand has evolved. But we were able to successfully build a farm, grow fantastic produce that people didn't just love, but but amazing chefs and people like Tom Colicchio. This is one of my favorite stories is, and I'm a top chef fan. So I've been watching Tom on TV for years and had watched him just eviscerate chefs, bringing him food he did not like. And so if anyone watches Tom Colicchio, you know, he does not hold back his opinion. So I remember going to him and, and we talked about the business and he said, well, you know, I love the mission. I love the idea, but I just want you to know I've tried every bit of product grown indoors and I've never tried anything that meets my bar as a chef. So I kind of sat there. I was like, Ooh, okay. That's a red line. And we had brought this like cooler case. Like it was like an Amazon fresh cooler case down, you know, that they delivered your food into with clamshells of buying clamshells of produce. And so I take it out on the table, that being my warm welcome sitting there saying, yikes, took it out. And I think the first thing we gave him was our basil and, and handed it to him. And if you watch Top Chef, he sort of has this inquisitive, thoughtful look as he's trying things. And he had the same look there and kind of waiting with bated breath. And he starts nodding his head and smiling. He's like, this is great. This is great. And we give him something else. And he tries that. Wow, this is fantastic. And he stops. He says, this is as good as what I get out of my garden. This is the best produce I've ever tasted indoors. And he 
right there said, I want to put this in my restaurant and actually took our clamshells and walked them into the kitchen and put those in the service that night, which for us was such a moment of pride because here is this incredible artisan taking what we've grown and worked so hard. I mean, in this case, years of time to get to and saying, this is good enough for me to serve to my customers, which from a chef is the highest form of praise. And all of those processes, building the farm, developing the technology and growing a product that stands for something that really resonated with people, we were able to prove all three of those things. And it was the ability to prove that and the ability to explain to people why proving that mattered that really set us forward in building the company to the next phases beyond. Another thing you mentioned is that it was abundantly clear to you that one of the few bets for this company was to create a brand and create a relationship with the end consumer. And I wonder why that was so clear to you, because obviously this is a business that you could easily have built as like an infrastructure play and let other people build brands on top of, or you just end up being a classic infrastructure supplier of some sort. But it was clear that you wanted to build sort of a household name. Why was that? I'm so curious as to why you were so convicted so early that the path of the company was a relationship with the end consumer. You asked a while ago about the researching and the learning and the talking and how much of that helped to shape the vision and the business. And this is a great example of it. And you didn't have to talk to that many people. You didn't have to read that much and look too much at the world, though the world today is different than it was six years ago when I really got started. Food was changing. Food is changing. People are asking the question, where's my food come from? How is it grown? How is it made? What are the ingredients in it? What are the chemicals that are grown in my product? Where is it actually coming from? Who's growing it? These kinds of questions are being asked with more intensity and vigor than ever before. And they are causing a real structural shift in the food system. And they're creating an enormous amount of challenges for the big established food companies and brands and enormous challenges for the big established agricultural companies and systems, which just aren't set up to answer these questions. And they're simultaneously opening the door for an incredible amount of new innovative food brands and ingredients and ways of thinking about the food system, which were historically shut out by these huge companies, which just benefited from their scale. And it also combined with what has made first round what you are today, this democratization that the internet provides of information and people can discover new brands and also discover information about old brands that maybe they don't like that causes people to search and explore in a whole new way. And that's why I'm so excited working in food and agriculture is food is massive. I think the opportunity in food and innovation in food and agriculture is just getting started and we are going to see an enormous number of very, very large companies being built in this space because the system has been a certain way for such a long period of time. And consumers, as they have said in so many other areas, are saying, that's not the way I want it to be any longer. And in many cases, structurally, 
the system isn't set up to adapt that change. And produce is a great example of that. You've got a very complex supply chain that's driven by the fundamental reality that certain crops grow at certain times of the year and certain places. And so to get those crops from those places at that time in the year to us so that we have what we want on the store shelf and on our table 365 days of the year requires a complex, very broad and convoluted supply chain that involves many, many different players. And therefore, to answer the question like, where does my food come from? Who grew it? What did they grow it with? It's very difficult to impossible. That's why when you look at some of the recalls that have happened in produce, if you look in the last couple of years, some of the recalls in Romaine, they've recalled every product in the entire country because they don't know where the problem came from. It is almost impossible to trace back. Certainly impossible to do it quickly. And the benefit that we can provide at Bowery is we control the entire process from seed to store. And so we can tell you everything about the product that you hold in your hand from the moment we planted the seed to the moment we delivered it to the retailer where you picked it up. And that level of transparency and the sustainable way that we can grow produce with no pesticides or herbicides or fungicides or insecticides and only using a fraction of the water and the ability to tell that story to consumers and to deliver also a higher quality product that's a day or two old versus weeks or months of time in the existing supply chain, that was clearly a completely different way of operating as a supply chain than had ever been done before. And you could build, therefore, a completely different brand in produce than it had ever been built before. And that was why I was convinced. So one of the areas that we haven't yet discussed in our time together is the team piece. And I'm super curious, and maybe we could talk about it in a couple different chapters over Bowery's life. But when you think about the cross-disciplinary team that you brought together, like the first four people, and the balance between subject matter expertise and, to your point at the very beginning, naivete and curiosity, can you tell us the story about the early hires, why you hired them, how you thought about what the first like four people who are going to work on this with you need to look like or what they need to bring? Absolutely. And I think there's a couple things interesting about the earliest of days. The first being we were a small team of five to start. And that was actually very intentional. Part of the reason that we did that was this was such a vast problem that there were so many rabbit holes one could fall down that were just interesting and exciting and felt important that when there was essentially one person responsible for each area of the business, it forced each individual to only focus on the things that mattered most. I'm a big believer that focus wins the day when building a business and certainly focus is critically important in the earliest stages because you have limited resources, limited time and lots to prove. And so one of your jobs really early on as a founder is to evaluate 
what matters most to the business I'm building? Where am I strong? Openly and honestly, like where am I strong? Where am I not strong? And where do I then overlap with what matters most? And in the areas that I don't overlap, then it's your job to go find people who can cover off on those areas. So I'm certainly not an agricultural scientist, nor am I a mechanical engineer, and I'm not a software engineer. And so those are three key places where we brought folks in early on who had experience in those areas to help lend their expertise. And then the last piece was the sort of financial component of our business, because we have had a real focus on unit economics from the earliest of days. And that's because when you're building a software business, nobody has a question of, can you make money building software? I think that's a pretty tried and true principle. And you sort of talked about this earlier, Brett. The question though is, will anybody want to buy the software that you make? In our instance at Bowery, it's actually opposite. There's no question that producing a better quality, better tasting, more sustainable product, in our case, produce, there was enormous demand. The question was, could you do it in a way that was economically viable? And that was really where we spent all of the effort and energy early on, which we've talked a lot about today. And that's where we needed to make sure we had an intense focus from the early days. And so it was that team of five of us that set off to go out and prove that we could build it, that we could grow it, and that we could sell it. And we had obviously the agricultural science side. There's a relevancy to that part of the business. And you know, Brian, who was our mechanical engineer, had actually interestingly worked in and around indoor agriculture and greenhouses for a while. So that sort of relevancy was really valuable. He had some domain knowledge, understanding and expertise, and his knowledge was really valuable. But you couldn't look at us and say, oh, wow, they have a bunch of experts. You know, we didn't have a 20 year greenhouse grower or a person who built greenhouses for 35 years. And that was really purposeful. That was where the naivety component of the equation came in. And that was where I felt it was very, very important to have enough working knowledge to be valuable, but not so much knowledge that it would send us down the long-term prescribed path that many before us had followed. And I think the other part of this that that is equally important, right, and that we've carried forward with us at Bowery since the earliest days is to augment the understanding and expertise or lack thereof with the team or from the team with really strong advisors who surround us, who oftentimes do come with decades of experience with incumbent food companies or with indoor growing or with operations, or with grocery and retail. And that provides enormous leverage for myself and for the team in actually a very efficient way. So can you give a little example of maybe some of these folks that you kept around you with deep expertise, but that was different than the full-time folks, which it seems like you really focused on excellence in the function 
versus excellence in a knowledge base of ag and maybe like how this group of five with these surrounding advisors work together? The truth of it is that in many of the areas, you know, Henry, who's now our chief science officer, who early on ran both the science side and our software side, there was not going to be anybody who was going to tell Henry how to build the Bowery OS. That goes right back to the video game with Henry trotting through the blackboard, illuminating it as he went and as we went. There was no playbook on that front. And in some ways, the building of our grow system, there wasn't really a playbook. Now, we were fortunate to have very early on a fantastic partner who did have a lot of experience in grow systems in general, who helped sort of augment what we didn't know. And that was really valuable. But because there is no playbook in indoor vertical farming, even historical knowledge in adjacent areas was not directly relevant to what we were doing. So a lot of the early days, to be fair, was really discovery and was pioneering and getting things wrong and getting things right. Now, one area where we were fortunate to be able to leverage incredible expertise was on the the sell-it component of the model. The ability to build a brand, but even more so to be effective in retail. And I really believe that what we're building at Bauer, I've always believed it's more than just a CPG brand. It's something larger and broader as an organization. And so I was reticent to seek or bring somebody on with a deep amount of CPG experience alone. However, I also knew that like it or not, we were selling a consumer product in a retail store. And so there are elements of what we're doing that mimic what traditional CPG has been doing for decades and decades. And to ignore that would be foolish as well. And so I was really lucky. I was introduced to a woman named Sally Roebling very early on. I mean, she was an advisor from the earliest days of the company and the investor from the earliest days of the company. And she had been building and running food businesses for much of her entire career. And she was a fantastic thought partner and advisor to me and to the business who was able to help us understand the way it had always been done and why, but also had the willingness to recognize that we weren't going to just do it a certain way because it had always been done that way. And she was willing to challenge the status quo and the quote unquote normal with us, but also to help us do that with the back pocket understanding of at least why that incumbent way of doing things was the way it was. Is that open-mindedness and curiosity or willingness to say it's been done this way, but maybe we should do it another way? Is that a thread that ties all the more senior experienced folks that you've now hired on the team? You can't come to work at Bowery if you want to run a traditional playbook that you've run a hundred times before. It just won't work because as I've said a couple of times in our conversation, there is no playbook for what we're doing. There's playbooks for part of what we're doing or components of it maybe, but there is no roadmap that lays out what one is supposed to do to create a vertical indoor farming company. There just isn't. And so the people who are most successful are those that come with a tried and true set of principles 
experiences and frameworks which they can apply to the problems that we're solving at Bowery, but with an equal part willingness and openness to adapting, adjusting, or in some cases, completely throwing out those very frameworks because they just may not be applicable to our problems. So for you, when you're interviewing, let's just as a hypothetical, you're hiring or certainly you've hired a CMO. And given this is a P0 criteria for you, what are you asking or what are you looking for in the time you're spending together that gives you conviction that they operate in the way you just outlined? The competency piece is reasonably well known in terms of understanding what someone has done and how they've executed and what kind of results they've driven. I think some of this is a little bit subjective in terms of understanding the environment someone comes from and where they've spent time and what they've actually built. And so Katie, who is our chief commercial officer today, she was at Starbucks for 15 years and ran many of their product categories over the years and grew with them and built the whole roastery business, you know, that you have in New York and Milan and Tokyo and she was a part of a dynamic, fast-growing, fast-changing organization where brand and values mattered enormously. While as they got larger, they had built their own playbook, they were at least reinventing themselves enough for Katie to have some experience and exposure to that idea of taking an understanding of the path ahead and then modifying and adjusting and modifying and adjusting. And I think you've got to really in, in any conversation with anyone in the organization, but particularly at these senior levels, as you asked about, look for examples that people can share where they have had to invent, where they have had to create where they have had to respond to the unknown or the unquantifiable and have able to have been successful. And in other cases, maybe not have been successful, but willing to try. Because you can't ask someone for, nor do I want 100% success rate. Because if we're doing that, that means we're not trying enough. And that means we're not taking enough risk. And so I think that willingness to take risk as well, Brett, actually is really an, an important part of this equation because that risk-taking mentality is directly correlated with someone's ability to take that framework like we talked about and apply it to a place that isn't going to fit over perfectly in 100%. Another related talent question that I had that just popped up from a few minutes ago is, is you used a lovely word. You said the early days were all about pioneering. It wasn't about taking a bunch of ag best practices and implementing it at Bowery. And so I was interested when you think about that first group of five that were building in the early days, did you specifically look for pioneering types or were you focused much more on just the functional execution? This person is world-class in X, in mechanical engineering, in software engineering. So I'd say C, both, because... We needed to find and have people who had those experiences and expertise, but it was self-selecting. It was undeniably pioneering. So anybody who didn't have a genuine attraction and interest to 
walking into the unknown, essentially the Lewis and Clark exploration across the US. Anybody who wasn't drawn to the fact that they were about to walk into the woods and they had no idea what they were going to encounter, where they were going to encounter it, and what was on the other side, like that was obviously the journey we were on. And if that wasn't attractive to someone, and I I talked to plenty of people who that was without a question not attractive to. And I made no hesitation to be very clear with people about what this was and what it wasn't because somebody has to be comfortable with that. And so by being incredibly explicit about the journey we were going on, we self-selected in some ways once you had that core expertise for the people who looked at that and they didn't kind of go, ooh, yikes, that sounds terrible or that sounds scary, that sounds concerning. But people said, fantastic, I'm in, let's go. When can we leave? To wrap up, Irv, had a couple final questions. The first is, when you look back on this journey thus far, what's been most surprising for you or unexpected? I think in some ways, Brett, this was a journey that I stared down from the very start that I knew was going to be rife with surprise. And I think it has lived up to that billing and more. If any place, I guess, is maybe surprising, but shouldn't be so. It's that coming from a world before this that was bits and bytes and code in some ways acts the way you expect it to act. And you can sometimes have bugs and problems, but you can fix them and find them. Plants don't always act the way you expect them to act. And so we always will live with a little bit of variability that comes from life itself, because life itself is a core component of what we actually grow and provide at Bowery. And I think there's something fun, but innately challenging about that instability and uncertainty that will always be there. That's very well articulated. (laughs) Reality is much more complicated than we would ever believe is something that I often think about. That is very true. And nothing is more real than, than things that grow from the ground, or in our case, that grow vertically around the country. So to wrap up, I'd like to end by just hearing, are there any people or books or things that you've read that have now had an outsized impact on the way that you think about company building and entrepreneurship? It's a tricky question. And I guess I never want to point to a single individual or a single text or a single article because I think my job as an entrepreneur and as a founder and a CEO is to continuously be building a pyramid. And by building a pyramid, you are allowing the vision and the company to go higher and higher and higher. And as anybody knows in building a pyramid, as you get higher and higher, you actually have to then build a larger base and a larger foundation to support a structure that gets higher and higher and larger and larger. And I think that means that I try to take every interaction and I try to take everything I read and I try to take everything I learn along the way and put those blocks into different parts of the pyramid. Some are foundational, some are at the top of the pyramid, some are right there in the middle. Some of those conversations with people provide many, many blocks. Some of them provide just a single block. When I look at the pyramid that is Bowery, or for that matter, when I look at the pyramid that's my entrepreneurial career, 
I don't know if it's a disappointing answer, but I actually don't point to, oh, I read this one time and that changed everything. Or I had this conversation or there's this person in my life that changed everything. There's many people who've had incredibly important influence in me and what I'm creating. Rob from First Round, who sits on our board, has been invaluably influential and, and extraordinary partner from the very early days of I mean, I can enlist so many different people who've had such an important impact on this journey and so many things I've read and learned and done, but it's hard for me to say, oh, Brad, it's this one thing I read this one time or this one person I know, because I think it's actually about amalgamating all these lessons and understandings together. And that's what builds the most durable and resilient pyramid that can actually reach the highest heights. I like that. And I hope that our conversation could be that one of those little things that somebody else listens to that's building a company that is kind of part of their tapestry or their pyramid. And so I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much. I would be honored if that was the case. So yeah, thank you. This was a really fun conversation. 